History Lecture 73, Rabbi Bleiweiss, uh, we are completing the Talmud today, making a siyum ashas. The uh, few uh, more comments on Rava. Rava has one of what I believe to be one of the most trenchant uh, pr- uh, probing comments on human nature. In Sukkah, he teaches us, Bischila karo helach, vachareichin oreach, ulubasov ish. At first, he called him a journeyman, or a, ways, a wayfarer, somebody on, the, on, on a path. Then, he was a guest. And finally, he was the man. So what's this saying? saying a lot. The idea is how the Yetzahara insinuates itself into your life. Initially, it's from a distance. It's from a remove. Um, he's like a traveler passing through. And then he asks, can I stay for the night? And you say, sure, come on in. Just a temporary thing. He'll leave the next day. Then he becomes a guest who's around a lot. He kind of sticks around and you get used to him. And then he becomes the man. He takes over his identity. You can, you can plug that into almost any kind of an addiction. You know, you think about, uh, let's say, people smoking marijuana. You want to hit? Yeah, sure, take it or leave it, is the attitude. I can take it. Back. And then suddenly you walk into the house and you find he has a bong next to his bed. And then eventually the man cannot perf- um, function in life without first, being, uh, without first getting stoned. Without that bong. That becomes part of his identity. The bong is me. So that could be a drug analogy. You could, you could, you could convert that to any number of different Yetzirahs. Uh, in a very few, in a very compact phrase, Rava really sums up addiction, the Sahara, and uh, human psychology. There was a beautiful scene in, in a movie pretty recently, but it has this idea where uh, there was a, in the movie the whole idea is that you could go into other people's dreams. Yes. But, uh, Inception. But at one point, uh, the people at the very end can't sleep without it because they live in their dreams and so they sleep in real life to live in their dreams so it's addiction that the whole life is based on oh I see it's another metaphor for a similar thing yeah. interesting um, Rava teaches us in the Gemara and Shabbos that when a person is um, when they bring a person in the, end, in the end of days to his final judgment they bring him to Din so they ask Famously, did you do your business transactions and your dealings in the world with faith? And only later did they ask, did you, did you uh, then, did you, would you establish set times for learning? Did you, uh, did you have children? Did you uh, involve yourself in procreation? Did you anticipate the end of days? And uh, it's an oft-quoted statement about how we're judged, among other observations, is how um, prosaic dealings in the world, in other words, how were you honest in your, in your business dealings, comes first. You can't be a tzaddik unless you're good with your wallet. Uh, in Rosh Hashanah, we learned that Rava would fast two days for Yom Kippur, just like... Other yantifs were kept for two days. Yom Tov Sheni the second day of, uh, of, of the yantif in, in, in exile. Um, and his reasoning was he was concerned maybe the basin in Eretz Yisrael might have been Ma'aber the Chodesh and maybe the day was in question and so he fasted both possible days that it could have been Yom Kippur. Uh, one time, in fact, the Gemara tells us that the real Yom Kippur fell on the day after what they had established. So everybody fasted on one day, but indeed Yom Kippur really was on the 11th of Tishrei. And only Rava had fasted correctly on that second day as well. So it's a Chumrah. Uh, it's not the way we paskin. In fact, the Bosque can talk about it and, and don't necessarily recommend it. But we do find later in history one of the famous Balitosfos, the Riyazaki, had the same practice of fasting for two days on Yom Kippur. So that, that was something that we got from Rava. Um, we find that the, uh, in the Gemara Sanhedrin, Rava teaches us that a tzaddik, who's free of sin, is capable of creating an entire world. Rava, indeed, was a tzaddik and he was free of sin, 
And he created, by studying the Sefer Yitzira, something that we found other Gedolim capable of doing, he created a man. He connected letters in the Kaddish Baruch's name and created a golem. And so there is precedent for such practice in our, in our literature. Uh, whether the Maharal created a golem or not is another uh, question that we, I, I addressed in my Gemara class earlier. When we get to the Maharal, we'll address it too. But Rafa certainly did, and he sent this man to Rabbi Zera, a different Rabbi Zera than the one, the, the Babylonian named Rabbi Zera, who was there in Rafa's generation. Um, but the man, the, uh, Rabbi Zera greets the man, and one thing he notices right away was that the man did not answer him. And one of the qualities, one of the ways you can tell a real, the real thing from a golem is that the real thing speaks. Only somebody imbued with a neshama has the capacity for speech speech making us distinctly human and of course imitating Kaddish Baruch Hu. and immediately because this golem was, un- was incapable of speech uh, Rabbi Zera realized it was uh, just a golem and uh, he told it return to dust and it returned to dust somehow you could, you could create it and destroy it apparently with relative ease if you're one of these gedolim so uh, we, we learn in the Gemara Kedushin when Rava dies and if you remember Rava was one of the series of Sadiqim, who we saw by uh, when Rabbi Yehuda Nasi died, so Rav Yehuda was born, and when Rav Yehuda died, Rav was born, and now the Gemara tells us when Rav died, Rav Ashi is born. Rav Ashi, who we know is going to be the editor of the uh, of the Bavli, of the of the Talmud Bavli. Um, we've said, uh, Ilani, you, 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 we, you've been away for a bit. We're rounding out the period of the Amor- Oh, really? It feels like, well, okay, fine. It's a big day, I guess. Anyway, we're rounding out the period of the Amorim, And um, we, there's still Chachamim back in Eretz Yisrael and Tiveria. We know that there was Rabbi Yirmiya, and there's Rabbi Yona, and Rabbi Yossi Barbon uh, among them. And it's really hard going. There's not a day that passes without persecution. We know that Rabbi Yonah and Rabbi Yossi Barbon are the last two surviving students of Rabbi Yochanan. They're old. They've been around for a long time. And it's during their days that the Yerushalmi is hastily completed. Meaning they, they worked on it, whatever they could do. Whatever they could do and it was, it was very quickly complete, completed. And we said the Yerushalmi never had that fine-tuned editing and polish that the Babli would have eventually take on. Um, at this point, the Masifs is totally destroyed. The, Roman, the Romans had destroyed the great uh, yeshiva on the sea. Uh, the survivors mostly live in hiding. They're underground. And uh, we're in the middle of the fourth century, and then something terrible takes place. Uh, there is a cruel Caesar by the name of Gallus, not to be confused with the way we pronounce Galut in Ashkenazi pronunciation, Gallus. You might pronounce his name, G-A-L-L-U-S, who is influenced by Christian priests. And he comes in and wipes out um, much of Jewish Judea, Eretz Israel. So um, ancient city, well, whole cities that have been around for a while are wiped out, including Tiveria, Tsipori. Tipori, if you remember, was one of the only places that survived the entire Great Revolt. They made peace with the Romans. Well, they didn't survive what's called the Gullus Revolt that takes place between 351 and 353 of the Common Era. Beit Sha'arim, Rebbe's home, totally wiped off the map. In fact, tour guide information. Um, this um, 353 was the last that we ever knew or saw of Beit Sharim. And you have to realize, Beit Sharim had been something of a, ca- a central, central rallying point in Eretz Israel. Um, you go there today, you visit the National Park, which is, I'm going to, I hope to be there on Thursday, doing exactly this, uh, guiding. And um, it's really interesting. And you see for about 100, up until this point, for the last 150 years, it's the go-to place for rich people from abroad when they send their bodies to Eretz Yisrael for burial. Often, they could not get into Jerusalem. It was off-limits because of the Romans. So they went to Rebbe's home and they buried their bodies in Beit Sharim. And this comes to an abrupt end with the Gullus Revolt in the uh, mid-300s. Um, the place is wiped out and it disappears off the map until the modern era. And it was discovered by accident by a modern Zionist figure, 
um, Zaid, Alexander Zaid was his name, uh, who was, has one of these stories where he was a shepherd with his sheep, and one of the sheep falls in a hole and he goes to explore. Wait, he's a modern shepherd? Yeah, modern day. But it's I don't know. Now he was Zionist, part of working the land. It's anti. Uh, it's not halakhic, right? Oh, interestingly, right, right, right. We could kill the person, uh, Morid in vain Malin. Okay, but that's a different story. We'll have to talk about that. So, yeah, the um, in any case, he is uh, he works the land and he stumbles on Beit Sharim. It's out of, outside of Kiryat Tivon, and now it's a national park, and it had disappeared for uh, for all of those centuries between the fourth century and the twentieth century. Uh, most of the Jewish dwellings around Eretz Yisrael are wiped out. Now there's another figure by the name of Julian from Rome who's called Julian the Apostate by the Greek, by the, by the Christians. Um, he's called Julian the Greek by the Jews. He's Gallus' half-brother. Uh, and he's against the Christians. He doesn't like his brother. He doesn't like the Christians. He's, he's anti-Christian. And um, he comes in after the destruction, and he has all kinds of plans to go against the Christian tyranny. And one of his ideas was he wanted to get the Jews on his side. He said, Jews, I'm going to build the base of Mikdash. And he has a whole scheme in the year 363 that he's going to build the base of Mikdash. Uh, he wants to weaken the Christians specifically. And there's a, a, a brief instant where there are not many Jews around, but whoever's around are extremely hopeful and excited. They're living in anticipation. But the whole project crumbles because of two reasons. One is there's a devastating earthquake uh, that sets everybody back. Um, you have to realize in Eretz Yisrael, we are on a geographical fault line, and um, there are a lot of earthquakes, and they will play a role in history. Uh, we already saw them playing a role in history. If you remember, um, Azariah's Saras, as he goes in and tries to take the, uh, uh, the position of Cohen, and there's the Rash, these great, the great earthquake that's referred to by many of the Nevi'im. But in modern history, too, uh, there, we're going to hear about devastating earthquakes. There'll be an earthquake in the year 749. There's an earthquake, let's say, more contemporary times in, in 1837 that Sfat slides down onto itself. Much of the ancient uh, graveyard is destroyed, is covered up by a landslide. Um, and, uh, is it like areas of California and Japan? Or? Yes, correct. It's on a continental uh, divide. And at the, the very end of the day, so there's going to be a big Apparently, there's going to be a massive earthquake. And of course, the seismologists are all anticipating what they call the big one. Uh, and the structural soundness of the buildings in Eretz Israel is. Not very. Not, it's, 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 a, it's a point of a major controversy <laughs> right now. And of course, uh, not doing much about it. Um, in any case, there's this devastating earthquake. Uh, and then Julius, Julian the, the Greek, or Julian the Apostate himself, has the gumption to die in battle. And of course, when the leader of the revolt dies, so the whole thing, uh, the whole project is terminated. There is no base mikdash. That, 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 comes, that unfolds in the 4th century uh, as much as there hadn't been now in hundreds of years any hope for such a thing. Uh, so the state of affairs now in Eretz Israel is about as bleak as it gets. There are Jews, families, underground, living this very tenuous existence, very precarious. There are places like Pekin, uh, well, we know that there are continuous uh, families who live there. There's, I, I told you today, you can go to Pekin, and there's a descendant, the last descendant of the last family. There's an old woman who never got married and had kids, very sadly. Uh, Margalit is her name, and she, she, to the last of my knowledge, at least she's still alive and living there. Uh, there are families in Shvaram, in, in, in Sfat, and other villages. Sfat is still not a significant place. Uh, but they're smaller now, and they're um, increasingly assimilated because they're not near a tourist center. So there's a community, for example, you can find what, what you can find, for example, in a place called Beit Alpha, which is on Kibbutz Cheftiva in the Jezreel Valley. You can find the national site. It's ancient, an ancient synagogue with mosaic floors. And what one finds there and other places too, in the mosaic floors are depictions of Helios, the sun god. I don't know if that bothers anybody else here, but you know that's not really appropriate anywhere. It's certainly not in the synagogue, 
but it, it, it can be explained in a number of ways. I think the most straightforward explanation is these are people who are essentially religious. They mean well. They're keeping Torah and Halacha, but you know they don't know that much. And so the way of the Goyim is to have Helios. Often they, they contracted non-Jewish artisans to do their work, and so they incorporated that into the mosaics. What are we going to say, Barak? Oh, no, I, I lost my timing, but I was going to say how the earthquakes that the Jews fought. Yes, right, right. Yeah. Not my fault. Yes. Dude, what, wait, I just looked up the key and it's a Druze. It is a Druze village. It is predominantly Druze, and there were Jews with the Druze uh, in that village. There's this, oh, there's this, what's that? Today you're saying that. There is one family, there's, there's that one survivor of the family, her name is Margalit. And she just lives in the Druze village. That's right. Um, yeah. When I took my tour guide class there a few years ago, at the end of the tour, we went to the ancient synagogue that's there that you can visit in Pekin to the day. We went up to the uh, cheesy touristy place where they claim is the cave where Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai and his son hid out up in Pekin, even though it probably was, the, the, the mentor says it was in Lod, in a totally different part of the country. But they have a tradition that it was up in Pekin. And you go to the ancient synagogue there, and at the end of the tour, we, um, some of the Druze came out and said, come have falafel. And my group was mostly religious, and they said, well, we need co- we know it's kosher, we need kosher. And they said, it is kosher, come, come. And they, they said, we have, a, we have a certificate, well, you can come eat by us. And we looked at the certificate, and, it, and there was a certificate that this Jewish establishment had. It was kosher under the supervision of Margalit, which uh, doesn't count as a rabbinic uh, supervision, uh, per se. And my second question was, um, I was reading, during this time, there was something in India where like a king or maybe a queen like what did you live in India or something? I don't know. Do you, do you know what that one did? India? Yeah, in India. In the fourth century specifically? Yeah. Doesn't ring a bell, but I'm curious if you have something to bring to me. I'll read it again. Yeah, please. Yeah. So um, the year is three fifty eight. Okay. There are still Jews in Eretz Israel. Uh, this, this Sanhedrin assembles under Hillel II. Hillel II is the, is the surviving um, descendant of the original Hillel and all the Nassim. Remember, the name is not you. The title is no longer used. And with his authority, they officially adopt the Jewish calendar that we have till today, recognizing that life in Eretz Yisrael for Jews is not something that you can count on. Uh, certainly having a, a, an authoritative Sanhedrin was not something that the Jewish world could rely on to establish uh, holidays and leap years and whatnot. They, they make a fixed calendar. It's in secret. Uh, according to the Ramban, it's the final meaning until the Mashiach comes of any Sanhedrin. It's the last universal decision that a Sanhedrin will make. Um, some theorize, we don't know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of questions about this period, but um, some say that this is the end of the Sanhedrin in, in the 350s. Others say it may have um, lasted till 425, and we'll hear about the devastation in 425, but it's either the end or near the end. And we realize we're, we don't, we're not, we can't count on the Sanhedrin to say, Makudash, Makudash which is ordinarily, the, the Mishnah tells us, is what you need to, uh, to sanctify a new month. So the question that we first have to ask is, wait a minute, isn't that the requirement? And without the declaration of the Sanhedrin, how can a new month ever be effective? It's a couple days from now, we're gonna, it's going to be Rosh Chodesh Shvat on Wednesday. How could we possibly make a Rosh Chodesh Shvat? Who's there to say? Who's there to declare it so? So Hillel II, Hillel Shani, uh, as part of the establishment of the new calendar, effectively, and it's, it's accepted in Alacha, is Mekadesh all future new months. He did it in anticipation, in the future. And it, and it, and it was binding. Uh, this, these are the days of Rapapa, the days after Abayan Rava and Bavel. Um, now, where did this calendar come from? We've talked about this, if you recall. Um, it had always been in existence. There's always been a theoretical calendar. We needed it at different junctures in history when there wasn't a set Sanhedrin. Um, we needed it in the times of the 40 years in the desert. 
We needed it during cloudy days when nobody could testify about the new moon. We certainly needed it during Golos Bavel when there were no Jews in Eretz Yisrael. So there were, it, clearly there was some kind of a calendar. Um, Rambam tells us that there was a tradition, it's called the Halacha Moshe Sinai, dating all the way back to Matan Taira of this calendar. It is an awesome work if you've ever studied it. Awesome, the non-Jews study it and cannot figure it out. They have no rational explanations for it. Uh, it seems to be infallible. It lasts so many generations. There's nothing of it, nothing of its kind in the world. Uh, meaning infallible, it's a solar lunar calendar so that Pesach always comes out in springtime. And other criteria are also met, and how you can figure such a thing out with such precision, we would say is, of course, that's Ruach HaKodesh that, the, that Chazal had, uh, that they could do this, and of course, if it goes back with our whole Torah tradition, then it, doesn't, then it makes a lot of sense. A couple of points, Aram, we've just, we're coming now near the end of the uh, Talmudic period. Eretz Yisrael is now uh, not all the way out, but very much down, no, no major figures, and they've just set the calendar because they're concerned that maybe there won't be a future up for the Sanhedrin. A few basic ideas you should know in history about the calendar. We bring down a tradition from Chazal, the tour brings it, Lo Adu Rosh, which means Rosh Hashanah never falls on Adu, Aleph, Dalid, and Vav, Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday. Right? The letters, of the, the letters correspond to the days of the week, the first day, the fourth day, and the sixth day. Um, that was, in order, if you have that calendar where there are three days of Rosh, Rosh Hashanah, to me, Rosh is Rosh Hashanah, uh, it could never fall on those three days, that's to make sure several things. One is Hoshana Rabbah will never fall on Shabbos, and they didn't want, even though theoretically it could, but they didn't want Hoshana Rabbah to fall on Shabbos, because that way we would not fulfill the rabbinic minhag of, uh, the minhag from the prophets, um, to do Aravos. And we do a Ravos during, uh, during, on, on, on Hoshana Rabbah. So this way, we always have Hoshana Rabbah. It never falls on Shabbos. Because if it was Shabbos, we would do away with all of that because we'd be concerned about carrying in public. Um, it also <laughs> ensures that Yom Kippur will um, not fall a day before or after Shabbos. Yom Kippur is never going to be on Erev Shabbos or Motzei Shabbos. Uh, the reason is Yarka Umasya. Before Shabbos, we're concerned that uh, vegetables would spoil. And um, after Shabbos, we're concerned that maybe if somebody died, the dead person would not be buried for two days straight. Uh, and there are other factors. Um, leap years now fall predictably. On every 19-year cycle, they all fall in the 3rd, 6th, 8th, 11th, 14th, 17th, and 19th year. Uh, this is Rav Adabar's cal uh, Ahava's calculation. Uh, Yom Tov Shilgalios still remains. It's Minagavoseim Biadeim. They still kept their forefathers' custom. And even though you think that the reason for Yom Tov Sheni was, well, they don't know in Gaulus when holidays are going to fall, but wait, now that you have a set calendar, we all know. No, because we keep the Minag once it's established. Uh, actually spoke about this. Okay. And he said that the reason why we still have the two-day calendar, like the two-day holidays, yeah. is in the times of Mashiach, we're going to go back to the keeping of the thing, uh, to, to actually... Keep it having, having a Sanhedrin. And, and at that point, yeah, and at that point, there's no going to be an easy way to reach out to, like, the other countries. That's the Ramchal, you say, says there still will still there will still be Yom Tov Shani So we're still, yeah. Because That's interesting. Okay. I wonder if everybody accepts that. Last point I'm going to make about the calendar is that from this point on, they cease counting the traditional way of counting the years, what's called the Mininus Staros. Um, they don't have, a, they often counted at this point from the Chorba Beis Mikdash, and that was what they wrote in their uh, legal documents. Now they start counting, if they ask the year, they start counting for the, um, again from the years of creation. So this year is Tafshin Ayin Hei, 5775. So that becomes their orientation. And it's only later when the Christian world so dominates world, world affairs that people start thinking in terms of the Gregorian calendar of 2014. Um, but they, they start using the, uh, the years of creation as a marker, as some kind of organizer. 
these are the days of Rav Papa. Rav Papa's the great student, the Gadolador back in Babel. He's the next generation of the Masaira, uh, student of Abaya and Rava. And um, he was alive till about 375. He was, um, he takes over near Surah in a yeshiva called Neris, uh, Neris, the Masifsin Neris. He and his, um, the, uh, another prominent figure in his day is Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, who you might remember in the story I keep referring to in the end of Shabbos. He's the one who's, um, who's told, his mother's told, that the Chaldeans tell him that um, this kid's got a huge Yitzhahara, so she makes sure that he never goes without his head exposed. It's one of the two major Gemaras that deals with covering the head and indicates that it was a Midas Chassidus, it wasn't a requirement on everybody, but you did it if you wanted to instill your Hashemayim, and she did. And Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, the Gemara goes on to tell us, was once sitting under a date tree, and a date fell off the tree and knocked his kifa off his head. And um, when the, kifa, the instant the kifa fell off the bed, the Gemara says, he went, he flew teeth first into the first cluster of dates that he saw. Meaning how potent was his Yetzirah? It was so potent that the second the head covering fell off, he was not even hands first. That would have been too good Derech Eretz. That would have had too much uh, self-restraint. He went teeth first, uh, stealing the first uh, tasty looking piece of fruit that he could find. Later on, he kept a covering on his head and he became one of the Gedolei Hador, Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, a great figure in the, in the Gemara. Um, Rav Papa is a great figure. I'm not going to go into great depth about him. There's a lot to be said. You'll certainly know him well after you go through all of Shas. A uh, couple pointers. Rav Papa was known for making large, generous siyums. Uh He and his ten sons, every time he completed a Masechet in Shas, which was often, and of course, because he was so generous, everybody associated uh, Rav Papa and his ten sons with making a seum. And if you've been to a seum before, you know that we commemorate them every time we make a seum of the Gemara uh, by actually saying each of their names individual, ind individually, which is where the tradition comes from. So Rav Papa was known, he was a wealthy person, and he was generous with his wealth. Uh, we know that in the Gemara Subos, he once buys a field from a man who needed money the man was desperate. He, he wanted. He, he had an opportunity to buy an ox. He had no liquid assets. He had no cash to be able to buy the ox. So he sold his field to Rav Papa to, to buy the ox. But then immediately after he did that, he found some money. And so he regretted the sale. He said, I want my field. And uh, Rav Papa had bought it fair and square. Fair and, square and Rav Papa didn't blink and return the field. He didn't have to do that. In Dina Mamonis, you don't have to do that. It was a fair and square transaction. Rav Papa was, uh, was, was sort of above uh, the letter of the law. Lifnim Mishras Adin is what we say. Um, it, one of the great figures of the 19th century Germany, Rav Israel Hildesheimer, would often refer to Rav Papa, uh, when they and he followed his model too, when students were tried to be Mishameshim, tried to do nice things to Rav Papa, Rav Papa was known to resist. He didn't like taking executive privilege. Didn't want anybody to do anything nice for him just because he didn't want to use his title of rabbi or the fact that he had Torah knowledge to get personal benefit out of it. And Rav Hildesheimer apparently was much the same. He, 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 he avoided much public uh, honor and uh, and certainly was not was not interested. Even though as students, our job is yes to be mishamish the Rebbe, but as far as the Rebbe is concerned, he wants to avoid it. Yeah, go ahead. Wait, can we talk about his uh, job? Who's he, he was known as a uh, beer beer merchant and a uh, poppy salesman. Pe poppy salesman. I wasn't going to get into so much. Yeah, I, I was just like, can we take that literally that he sold? Um, oh, sold not 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 for the um, narcotic effects. Yeah, I heard, I know, oh, you I said somebody wants to bring that as an example of narcotic effects. Uh, that sounds not, like not a, that, that sounds like a modern sell. projection. I would say. Like uh, I heard, uh, poppy seeds. <laughs> Poppy seeds, they're also delicious in hamantashen. I mean, is, is that the main interpretation? Or is I don't know. I can't imagine that the drug culture was anything like we yeah, imagine it today. I, it was not that you should picture a papa smoking it up in an opium den. Not, not, not likely to happen. I, I resist that as a modern projection. I, I, I notice my tone also. I'm not denying it categorically. I don't know. The Gemara doesn't talk about it. Doesn't sound right on any. I mean, it's an unlikely. On any level, very unlikely, and, and and you understand wishful thinking. Modern people love to reimagine rabbis as toking it up, 
right? And uh, come on. Yeah, I, it was a very unreliable source, and I heard. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, and these are hard times for the Jews. As much as we have these great figures like Papa, we also have terrible figures like Theodosius. And Theodosius is is um, is one of the uh, one of the Roman em em uh, emperors. He rules. Um, he lives a long life. He's around. Excuse me, wrong. Excuse me. He doesn't live a long life. He has. He puts in law. He legislates what's called the Theodosian Code, which comes out in the fifth century, meaning the four hundreds, and it's vicious. It. Through the Theodosian Codes, which is several laws, A, Jews are not allowed by law to have any government position. The only thing they're allowed to do is be tax collectors, which is not a, an envious, not, not a job you want. That means people hate you. It's got lots of risks and penalties. They kill the tax collector, then they don't have to pay the taxes. So other than being tax collector Jews, Jews are excluded from all public positions. They don't have military jobs. They're not allowed to, to build shuls. They're not allowed to testify in Christian courts, which, of course, are the courts in town. Um, Jews are forbidden from converting non-Jews. And in 425, Theodosius goes even further, further and he finds the Nasi, who's, who's Rabbi Gamliel VI, the son of Rabbi Hillel, the second who just set the calendar, uh, and he imprisons him because he built a shul <laughs> and has him executed. And Gamliel, Rabbi Gamliel VI, is the last Nossi. Not that he's officially serving in that capacity, but he's the last in the line of Shilel uh, who's to serve in any real capacity as Nossi, <laughs> and he's murdered by the Romans. Uh, not clear. We'll see. Of course, the Davidic line will last, and we're going to see the institution um, will, will be started again. But it's a terrible blow, and Theodosius does not stop there. Now, from this point on in history, they officially outlaw any position of Nasius. There's no figurehead for the Jewish people, no Nasi or anything like it. They prohibit smicha. There is no more smicha, and you remember one of the qualities of smicha, to give proper smicha, you need to be in Eretz Yisrael. And these, they're, 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 they're legislating this in Eretz Yisrael. And there's no more Sanhedrin. And you remember the decrees previously, they tried to get rid of smicha, they tried to get rid of the Sanhedrin. You remember the great story of Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava, who goes out with his five students, Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli, and the others. And he gives them smicha. This is the end of smicha, of legitimate, recognized smicha. There'll be something else throughout history called smicha, but it's not the real thing. It's certainly not ish mi pi ish, dating back all the way to Moshe Rabbeinu. So the Romans finally do us in. Uh, we'll find that a tenacious group of Jews, many years later, uh, um, under the quasi, they call, they use the term nasi, but it's not a descendant from Hillel. His name is Marzutra. Uh, they'll come back and live again in Tiberia. The Jews never give up. You know, that's, that's our spirit, but it's not the real thing. And we'll see what happens to Smicha in the upcoming centuries. Um, finally, in Bavel, in the um, sixth generation of Amoraim, Rav Ashi arises. Rav Ashi is the great student of Rav Papa. His dates are given as between 352 and 427. He's considered the first editor of the Babylonian Talmud. He reestablishes Surah, Rav Sushiva. Although he leads elsewhere. He's, um, he's the Rosh Mesefsa in Matamachsia, another great, great center in Bavel. Um, he, together with his colleague Ravina, Ravina was actually older than Ravashi, um, are considered the end of Hora'ah, meaning they and they alone are the last generation, the last individuals who have the authority to teach, as it were, new halacha. They had their authority, and from that point on, it all changes. It's a very significant turning point what in history. The teach? What's that? The they did, but they were teaching a reflection of what they taught. There was nothing new that was added. I think the best analogy, if you remember we said this, 
Yirmiyahu Navi was considered the last Navi. There were a bunch of Navim afterwards, but he was the last original Navi. All other later Navua were reflections of Yirmiyahu's. So perhaps that's that's the that's one way of understanding it. That's what it's when when the Gemara says the the Sof Hora'ah, the end of Hora'ah, and the Gemara in Baba Metziah, That's what it means. Um, this represents the end of the Shalshelis Kabbalah, the chain of the tradition that had lasted forty generations since Moshe Rabbeinu. And on your Masoret charts that I passed out, it actually is traced down one more generation. Mar Baravashi, the son of Ravashi. But this is the end. So this is the end. Is this the end of history? Well, sort of. It's the end of history as we know it, and a new phase is about to begin. And what I'm about to explain to you is the meta-significance of this classic work that we have that's called the Talmud. It's of all, it's all of importance because everything that's been sustaining the Jewish people since Matan Torah is now about to reconfigure. We've just lost the Sanhedrin. We've just lost the Nasi. We've just lost all of these institutions, and so everything's got to be reconfigured. Now, a little bit about Ravashi. Uh, the Gemara Gitin says something that we heard recently about Rebbe. Since Rebbe, there hadn't been anybody for whom Torah and Godless was in one place. Greatness and Torah were in one place. He, he, was, he, was, he had all of Torah. He was righteous. He was, he was humble. He was wealthy. He leads Klal Yisrael for almost 60 years, which is important, too, because um, <coughs> this massive undertaking, this project, was a time-consuming project. We keep saying, in contrast with the Yushami, the Bavli was the very accomplished, polished text. Well, that wasn't just that didn't just happen. That was a, a major undertaking, and 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 uh, Ravashi was blessed with longevity in order to do that. Uh, Gemara Brachos tells us that during the Shabbat of the Rigla, the big Shabbos before each of the three Rigolim, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, he would darshan, and as he darshaned. Uh, not wanting to interrupt the drasha and then be mevatel Torah for the rabbim, he said Shema. He made sure to be soma geula letzfila. He uh, in his tefila he made sure to say geula letzfila. And as and he did all this, he davened while he was davening. The the meturgaman, the the man who translated his shir, was was finishing darshaning for the masses. And Ravashi, not wanting to uh, cease the shir, would just quickly daven on the side. Uh, he also, he was known for sitting. He didn't want to be a burden on the public. He didn't want people to have to stand up. So he always remained seated, and that way they didn't have to stand for him. He was clearly the undisputed Gadol Hador. Hundreds would gather in Matamachsia at the Yarchikala. It's not as many as uh, we've had a few centuries earlier, but it was a, it was a major event. Um, and the Gemara tells us that a pillar of fire would descend before them, uh, before them and the surrounding nations, people would see this immense display of the Kala. And uh, interestingly, the Gemara says, as much as the Goyim, saw, the non-Jews saw so many miracles, um, it didn't inspire them. It didn't inspire them to convert. Uh, Ravashi teaches in the Gemara Tainis that a Talmud Chacham who's not hard as iron is not a Talmud Chacham. Ravashi was tough, so his his Chavrusa, Ravina. Uh, has a rejoiner. He he points out. He says, still he has to teach himself to behave benichusa. He has to be gentle with people. It's true. He has to be made of steel. But on the at least with people and his dealings with people, you have to have a gentle touch. Ravina was quick to point out. Um, and indeed, we find Ravashi was tough, but he was toughest on himself. And in the Gemara Pesachim, we we find that for Pesach he. Um, would only, nothing else would do, he bought only new lot knives for himself. He would never kosher the old knives, even though for the masses he taught them the dinim, the dinim of Hagala, of boiling, so you could kosher the, uh, the knives. And he was lenient with others, and you see this kind of a pattern with a lot of gedolim, how they're strict with themselves and lenient on others. That was certainly Ravashi. Uh, it's Ravashi, you remember we told the story, uh, it's already a couple months ago. Ravashi once is stuck. He, he's giving a shear about B'tziya Sapas, where you're supposed to break the bread at, uh, when you say Hamotzi, and he doesn't know exactly where, so he goes to sleep, and who appears to him in a dream? Shh, I know you're going to get this. Who appears to him in a dream? Anybody else remember this story? No, 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 it's a real figure in history. He's, he's stumped by a halachic question, he doesn't know what to do. And none other than Menashe HaMelech. King Menashe, one of the wicked men of all time, 
comes to him in a dream and teaches him exactly where it's where the Menashe uh, tells him that it's where the um, the nicest looking part of the of, of the bread of the challah, and uh, and then Ravashi asks him famous his famous question. He says he says you're such a gadol in Tyra. How is it that you stumbled in idolatry? And Menashe, King Menashe gives his explanation. He says you don't understand what it was. Back then, we all had a Sahara for idolatry. You don't have anything like this. He said, he, he describes it to Ravashi. He says, if you were alive back then, you would have um, picked up your garment and put it between your legs in a humiliating manner and run after the idolatry. You would not have been able to control yourself, even you, even the gut of the door. And the next day, Ravashi comes back to teach the Torah, and he teaches the name of, in the name of Rav Hussainu. Our rabbis, and he refers respectfully to King Menashe, who was otherwise a Russia, but uh, there's a debate we said about whether he, his chuba was ever accepted. He's counted among those uh, seven figures who Elam Chelech Hamba, but what that means exactly uh, needs, needs some understanding. Um, Rav Ashi wrote a book called the Yesod Hanikud Hagadol, which is one of the earliest books that we know of on Hebrew grammar. Hebrew grammar is going to become, in the, in the, in the, in the future generations, a major source of discussion and, and conflict among Jews. And Rav Ashi, uh, we know from Rav Haigon, who, who brings this down, wrote this book. It would be used later by Gaonim and later generations as one of the primary sources on, on Hebrew grammar. Because if you've noticed until this point, grammar has not been a focus. Hebrew is Lashon HaKodesh, it's the language that uh, certainly the, the Tanakh and the Mishnah are written in, and the, the, the Gemara and the Midrashim certainly have a lot of Hebrew in them, but to understand it as a system in itself that is worthy of study and understanding and analysis and, and its own grammar, that was, that was new and that will be, a, that will be an increasing focus. Um, the Rush tells us, the Rush, the great Rishon, tells us that we accept testimony of the Gaonim who received it whenever they have a halacha, if they received it from the Saboraim, who in turn receive it from the Amoraim. These are the next phases in history. Um, and of course, the Amoraim all sat in the chair of Rav Ashi and they davened in his shul. That's how the Rush described it. Meaning, meaning that we have an ongoing tradition, and it all dates back to Rav Ashi. So this massive undertaking, what most good Jews spend, day, spend their days immersed in, is what we call the Talmud Bavli. And this completion was a miraculous, uh, uh, it was a period of time, it wasn't an event. It took place under Ravashi and Ravina, um, but it was unique. And the Kaddish Baruch Hu arranged it in such a way that all the pieces had to be in place to take place. So we know the Gemara Nida tells us that the king's mother, a woman named Ifra Hormiz, uh, she was a, a major advocate of the Jews. She was close to Ravashi, she asked Shilas, and she almost converted, the Gemara tells us. And because the king, her son, Shwarmalka, had such an affinity and a close relationship with Ravashi, um, he permitted this project to take place. And without that kind of leniency, and you're, you're reminded directly of Rebbe Udanossi's massive project of the Mishnah, and the, and the, the general, the, the friendship that he enjoyed with Antoninus Pius, the, the Caesar in Rome, only if you have friends in high places can you actually be functional and, and, and be productive uh, in doing what you're doing. Now, during these days, we have no musmachim, nobody with smicha left in Eretz Israel. We know the situation of Klal Yisrael in the diaspora is very, very precarious. They're all over the place. There's no central Torah. Bavel's the central address. It's on Bavel that we all lean. We know now that there are increasing disagreements over the meaning of Mishnah. With this in mind, Ravashi gathers Chachamim literally from all around the world, and the word goes out, we are going to create the definitive Gemara, and the term Gemara means the learning the tradition. And if it's not in the Gemara, it's not Judaism. So we want to get it all in now while we can, recognizing that the Jewish position in the world was increasingly uh, at risk. Now the Bavli we know contains, out of a total of 61 Masechtos of Mishnah, the Bavli only covers 36 Masechtos. Right? A little over half are half. You know what that means? That means practically that we got, if you can picture this, we have Mishnah, 
We have uh, Mishnah. So then on the Mishnah, sometimes you don't have anything. And sometimes you have sprawling Gemaras. So there's 36 Mesechtas that have sprawling Gemaras on the Mishnah. You're looking it up, Daniel. Uh, there are 36 on, on, on the Mishnah. Um, there are 526 chapters of Mishnah. Uh, <coughs> what did Ravashi do? Previously, what do you have? You had all, a lot of learning, but it's disorganized. It's all over the place. And previously, the Gemaras had not been organized around Mishnah tractates. And that's one of the accomplishments of Ravashi. Now, different sugyas are being placed by different Mishnayos and, and being arranged in a semi-logical uh, fashion that it, because it's so sprawling, you can't get everything perfect, but it's, it's mostly brought, brought in where, I mean, there's a perfection to it. It was done with Ruach HaKodesh, but it's, there's a sense that it's not every Gemara is a direct discussion of the previous Mishnah. Sometimes it goes Indian, le Indian, boso Indian. It goes from topic to topic, and it does seem to have. I, I, I've asserted yesterday in Gemara that uh, there is an internal logic. Sometimes it's not evident to the learn to the to the student. Um, every anonymous kasha that the Gemara asks, you should know it's Ravashi and Ravinas. Um, Every time that there's a simon that's given before a sugya as a mnemonic, as a way of remembering the sugya, because they hoped they understood that people would be memorizing these sugyas, that's also from Ravashi and Ravina. When they can work out the Psak Halacha, they do. And often in the Gemara, we saw this in the, uh, those of us who have been learning the first chapter of Makos, see, Halacha follows Rabbah or Abaya or whichever, whichever position is relevant, and they, they do Paskin. Um, whenever they paskin, that's with, you have to understand, when you're learning Gemara, you should understand, that was with the endorsement of all of the Chachamim of their day. You know, they didn't take the authority themselves. They said, and the halacha goes like this, because picture like a world convention of leading rabbis, um, they're weighing in and saying, yeah, this is the halacha. This is how it goes. And when they can't paskin, and in their intellectual honesty, sometimes they say, we don't know, we don't have any answer to this. They left the sugya open in the form of an elegant <laughs> teku, which stands for Tishbi Yitaritz Kushios Uvalios. The Tishbi, that's Elia Navi, will explain all the unresolved kashas and all the questions. And at the end of days, he's going to be a very busy man, Elia Navi, he's going to resolve all of our Yichis questions, who's a Levi, who's a Mamzer. <clears throat> and, and on all other related questions, and he'll be resolving all the tekus that the Ravashi and Ravina were unable to resolve in their days. I think the best way of thinking about it is like this. What's in the Bavli? Not everything. But everything that you need to know. What does that mean? <clears throat> you remember that we used to have millions of prophets? There were millions of prophets, but only 48 men pro male prophets and seven female pro prophets are officially recognized. Not only do they have books, but they're, they're cited by Psukim. Only of them are officially recognized because only these 55 Nevi'im would be recognized as needed for the future generations. So it's the same idea in the selection of what goes into the Bavli, what goes into Shas. They only include the relevant learning for the future within the vast, what's called the Yamashal Talmud, the whole sea of Tyra, this is only a piece of the Tyra. Don't you have that, that feeling sometimes when you're going through a Gemara that it's just sprawling, but we're only getting a piece of the story? And that's true. They selected out the highlights, the key points that people would need for, for the future. Um, and the rest of the Yamashal Talmud was, 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 not, was not included. Now, practically, what does this mean? In the 36 Masechtas, they include, there's a, there's a, a Gemara for all of Masechtas, all of the tractate, Seder, Seder Moed, Noshim, and Nezikin. Okay, those three dealing with the holidays, dealing with uh, family subjects, and dealing with monetary laws. Uh, these, of course, all the relevant future generations. Um, they have a Seder Kodshim, why should there be Kachim, which deals with the base of Mikdash? But there is no base of Mikdash. In Bavel, what did they care? The third base of Mikdash, but even something even more practical. 
when you study the laws of the base of Mikdash, when you study the laws of the Korbanos, it's as if you're bringing the Korbanos only, none of the mess. Uh, so they have Kachim, and we learn Kachim, we have Zvachim and Nachos and other, other and Psachim, we have lots of different discussion of the different uh, uh, Korbanos. We have a, a, of all of tract of all of Seder's drawing the seeds. Well, that's mostly agricultural laws, which are not relevant in Eretz Israel. The one tract that we have in in Zroim is brachos, okay, and in taharos, mostly dealing with tumantara, which also is not relevant with Avesim Mikdash. The one tract that we have, the Maseches Nida, which of course is eternal family purity laws. Um, the rest of Zroim and taharos are omitted. Um, Moed is lacking one Masechta Shkolim, which is relevant to the base of Mikdash. We don't have a Gemara on. Um, in Nizikim, two tractates are not included. Eduyos and Avos. Avos dealing with basic morality. There's no Gemara per se. Certainly, um, every mission in Avos is comment, commented on widely and broadly. And Avos to Rabbi Nassan and, and other sources. That's what I was going to ask. Why is that not considered? Well, it's, it's, it's Bryson. It's not a Gemara per se. It doesn't take the format of, of a Gemara, and it, 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 it's a different style. But you could, if you really wanted to understand Avos, as you, we all should, uh, better, you should learn the 41 chapters of Brysos in Avos Rabbi Nassan. 41 of them, count them. Um, Talmud has four functions. Talmud has four functions. One, the purpose of the Talmud is to explain the reasons for the Mishnayos, and as we define the Mishnah, the Mishnah is the bare down, bare basic law of the oral Torah. Okay? And the Gemara's function is to explain that. Number two, it's to transmit the Pesach. What do we do? What's the practical halacha? Three, the Talmud's goal, the Gemara's function is to give, uh, since Rebbe, many, many zeros of the Kanos, many decrees were made by the rabbis, and it's a record of all those decrees. All what we call the Rabbonon, but the Amoraim, the Amoraim, their 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 decrees from the period of the Gemara, and number four, it's to teach what's called drushos and agadita, stories, parables, narratives. Agadita takes up about one seventh of all of the uh, all of Shas Bavli. Rabbi Yochanan says, "You will uh, you learn agadita, you understand the, the secrets of the world." Now, Rav Ashi passed away. His son, Marba Rav Ashi, and his nephew, excuse me, and Ravina's nephew, who's called Ravina, he's the second Ravina, they put the final touches on the last text. The year is about 475. We're still a little bit sketchy with the dates, but it's given usually about 475 in the Common Era. They're considered the seventh and the final generation of the Amoraim. Amoraim are now coming to a close. Yeah. What was the second of the four things? The second one is to set, um, to transmit Piskedim. Now, they're the end of the Amoraim. The next generation are counted as the first. Do you remember the name, name of the next period of time in history? Savorayim. Savorayim. It's before the Gaonim. There's a very, and it's a, the least known period called the Savorayim. We'll talk about it soon. Um, they, the first generation of Savorayim, uh, <laughs> their job now is to put it into writing. It had not been formally written down. It was a text. It was agreed upon. Most of it was still oral, though. And the, fi the, the first real written f format for the Gemara was what the Sabor... That's their major project, is the Sabarayim edited it and put it all in writing. It's done under a certain Rav Yossi. It's in Pompadisa. The final written form is achieved sometime in the early Dark Ages. It could be as early as... <laughs> 540, and some people put it later around 700. 560, 600, 700, sometime in that window of time, which is a which is a tricky period and a dark period for Klal Yisrael. The final written form of the Bavli emerges. The Rambam explains in his introduction in his introduction to his Perush Mishnayos, all base Yisrael, the entire Jewish people, except the final work of the Bavli. Person who does not accept the final work of the Bavli is not counted. Not is going against Klal Yisrael. Even today, even today, 
All base Yisrael except the final work. In all places and for all times, the Rambam says, the Jews come and go according to its wisdom. If you, I'm, I'm, if, among other things, I'm making the case today for why, as much as it's tricky for a lot of us to learn Gemara, and Gemara is, not, is intentionally not an easy text to get through, you've got to pay your dues. It's like joining a club. You've got to earn it. Um, so you got to work hard, and I strongly encourage you to work on those skills to get past the early hump, the early stumbling blocks, because many people don't stick with it. They get frustrated early on and never really pursue a career learning Gemara. But Gemara is everything. It's the foundation of Klal Yisrael. You don't understand that. You don't understand basic Judaism. You'll go to your grave in ignoramus. Has v'sholem, but that's the reality. And that's the Rambam saying. They come and go only according to the wisdom of the Talmud, um, it can either it can neither be added to nor diminished. The Talmud is the perfect recipe of everything. The Chulub of the Mishnah says in Perkiavos, turn it over because it's all there. You may not know how to read it well, but it's there. Um, the Kesef Mishnah of Yosef Karo says, no man can argue with it. You can't just reject the Gemara. And if a Gemara, and, and, and if the Gemara uh, contradicts what you're saying, then you're wrong. Uh, nor can any Xero's decrees be added. Only through the Talmud from now on, and this is the major point that I'm making, if Ravashi and Ravina are the Sof Harah, they're the end of teaching, Talmud is, becomes the Harah. So in now, in the future generations, we have Savarayim, we have Gaonim, Rishonim, and we're in the period of the Achronim. You understand that all Gedoli Hador, all leading rabbis, their basis, their foundation is in the Talmud. Without the Talmud, we're nothing. Yeah. So, so I wanted to remind you that, that you wanted to make an announcement during history, but as well, like, I do. That, that that brings up the question because uh, it said in the Gemara about uh, like it states one thing and it seems pretty clear. Yeah. But then you see the rabbis later on seem to go completely contradictory. Uh, yeah. In. Uh, in the morning show. Yeah, what did I say? Remind me, I don't uh, remember. So it was talking about Prukrish uh, um, on, what is it, uh, when you want to have... Oh, what I just said this morning. Right, that you want to... Oh, I did, yeah, sure, sure, sure. No, because they, well, I make it... They, they, see, there, they're learning it in the Gemara. It seems from the Gemara on Sanhedrin uh, on 59A, B, Amun Beis, and the Nuntes Amun Beis, um, it seems there that the um, Pruvu, the mitzvah, the first mitzvah in the Torah, to reproduce um, was used used to be universal. All all people had to reproduce. And from Matan Torah, it seems it seems that Shat in the Gemara is um, is that uh, only the Jewish people have the obligation. I've said that before here, no? Okay. Now, now I have it. Yes. Um, the Shiltos, which we not not long not long from now we hear about one of the one of the works of the Gaonim, halachic work, learns the Gemara differently. I mean, he doesn't contradict the Gemara. He has a different, they have a different shot in the Gemara. And then Siv, who wrote Ha'emek Davar, commenting on the Shiltos, explains it that actually, till today, there is a mitzvah, and there seems to be different views on the subject. There is a mitzvah for non Jews to have kids. Yeah, that was the point. Uh, good. Jewish Bavel, miraculously, remains autonomous. Jews have their own authority just long enough to complete the Bavli. <coughs> Baruch Hashem. Hashkocha Pratis. Hashem looks over us. Um, again, this is the last peaceful period for a very long time under Ravashi and Ravina. The wicked Sassanids, the Persians, will decree that Jews are forced with it right after the Bavli is completed. They, 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 um, they have a new legislation, a new law. All Jews are by law obligated to desecrate Shabbos. They forbid saying Shema. They forbid Jews from performing bris milah. Jews, guess what? We resist. Because that's who we are. And as we, as we will find this throughout history, the Jews will fight this, but not always effectively. And on one Shabbos, after the Bavli was completed in the month of Tevis, the king symbolically captures the three Gedolei Hador. Their names are Amemar Bar Mar Yanuka. A lot of the people have similar names. It's not the more famous Amemar that we heard earlier in the Gemara. Um, Rav Misharshia. His name is Rav Misharshia Bar Pakod. And Rav Huna Bar Marzutra, who's the Nasi. He takes the, the title Nasi. He tortures them trying to induce them to betray the Torah. They don't. 
and ultimately he murders them, he imprisons the, he imprisons the rest of the Jewish leaders. Uh, this is all, by the way, how do I know all this? Because this is no longer in the Talmud. What are my sources? The primary sources for this period we're going to see are the Igeris of Rab Shrira Gaon, uh, one of the later great Gaonim. He writes a history book on this period. Uh, and there's another, the Ravid has another great history source for this period. There are some more secular history sources, and I'm going to be drawing from that too, a little bit too. It, we'll, we'll see. Um, the next year, the, they go on a rampage. They destroy shuls around Bavel. They kill thousands. They force Jewish children into apost apostasy. Um, you have to realize this is unprecedented. In the history of Babylonian Jewish community, all the way back to Gullus Bayes Rishon, the Jews of Bavel never endured this kind of hardship. And we're starting a new phase in history. Many Jews now flee Bavel and they go to places as obscure as Arabia. And it's from this period we begin the period of the Savarayim, and I don't have much to say, so I'm going to say a bit about the Savarayim now, uh, and then tomorrow, Bizrash Hashem, we're going to um, get into the Muslim Revolution. But about the Savarayim, uh, the dates we said are a little unclear. Do we start with 475 when the Bavli was completed? Does it start later? Does it go all the way till 700? Okay, it's sometime in this period when, in, when Europe was in its dark ages. So the Savarayim came to edit the Talmud. As we said, they don't add to the Talmud. They don't reduce the Talmud. They give, and of course, two to their name, the Savarayim give a svara. They give a reason for the words of the Tanaim and Amarayim. They organize the work into um, coherent chapters, logical, log logical chapters. They're a bit mysterious themselves. We know several names. Uh, sometimes they themselves seem to make an appearance in the Bavli. Um, Rashbam says that a certain Rav Achai was a Savora who somehow appears in the, in the story in the Gemara, and that would be okay. That's not an anachronism because it just means when they edited it, they threw in a story about him that was relevant to the Daf. They certainly knew uh, they, were, they, were, they were masters of the Talmud, and they might have inserted that. Um, we know that they were persecuted, but we know that there's a lot about this period that is a mystery to us. Uh, Lavouche brings down, here's some of the significant points of the Savarayim. They uh, set several minhagim that are become accepted in the Jewish, uh, in Jewish practice, and this is before there's such a thing as Ashkenazi or Sephardi or anything like this, and here are several minhagim that they date back to the period of Savarayim. Um, they are the ones who make the changes in Shmonasrei that we say during the Aser Sumei Tshuva. So we say, Zohreinu l'chaim, uchsov l'chaim tovim, kol b'nei These lines that we insert in Shmonasrei, that comes from the Savarayim. Uh, Rabbeinu Yonah tells us that they're the ones who establish what's said in Pesukin Zimra every day. Pesukin Zimra predates them. But they're the ones who say, this chapter of Psalms, that chapter of Psalms, this line of Psalms, that's what gets said in Pesukit Zimra. Um, one of the last Savarayim is named Rav Sheshna Gaon, which if anybody's got a historical sense, you might think, wait a minute, if he's a Gaon, why is he a Savora? Because the next period is called the Gaonim. No, the term Gaon was, was, a, he, was he was a genius. He was, that's what the word means. Uh, but he was a great man of a great yeshiva, but he's counted as the last of the Savarayim, among the last of the Savarayim. He... Uh, set the min he's credited with the minag of going to the mikveh on Erev Yom Kippur and also the minag of doing kaparos. Anybody swing a chicken in the air uh, during the uh, 10 days of tshuva? So that, that's dated back to Rav Sheshnagahon according to the Meiri. Um, it's a minag that's still alive and well for to uh, until today, um, not so much for the chickens, but for the rest of us. The um, Rav Shririgahon says the final savora was named Rav Yossi. Um, so that's the Savarayim. And then for the last point of today, I'm going to go back to Rome. What's going on in the Roman Empire? Remember the Roman Empire cracked in half. In the east is Byzantium. Byzantium is doing fine. It's a, it's a flourishing empire. But in the west, Rome has seen precipitous decline over the last 300 years. If we're holding right now somewhere in the, five, the four or five hundreds, you're going to notice now, and people who might have missed class yesterday, today, tomorrow, and we'll come back, suddenly several hundred years will have passed, because this is um, 
more of a dark period in our history too. There's not much to be said in the coming <laughs> centuries. A few significant things. We're going to tell some stories. But suddenly, within a few days, we're going to find ourselves in the period of the Rishonim. So what's going on in Rome? Rome declines. They have a second war with the Visigoths, uh, led by King Alaric, that ends with the sack of Rome in the year 410. Later on, Attila the Hun and Bleda the Hun in the uh, 400s will raid Rome. The Vandals will, uh, will sack Rome for the second, uh, that'll be the second time Rome is sacked in the year 455. And you have to realize, each time that this happens, Rome goes down a notch. I mentioned the theory, Rav Orlowick has a theory that the Jews destroyed the Roman Empire because they showed the world that the uh, invincible Romans could be fought. And when others saw them, when the Visigoths and the Vandals and the Huns saw that what the Jews did, they said, hey, we can try that too. And they did. And each time they were increasingly effective. In 476, the year after the Bavli, I guess, was completed, right? And we say when Yaakov rises, Esau falls. Uh, that was the Bavli. It was a great, great time for the Jewish people. The last emperor of the Western Empire, his name is Romulus Augustus, is killed by a German chieftain. With his death, with his fall, the main Roman Empire really draws to an end. The Gemara Megillah anticipates this. The Gemara says famously that Germany and Rome were constantly fighting, and that actually acts as a harness on Asaph for centuries. Um, so what happens to Rome? It goes underground, and there people, it's constant fighting. It's not a stable regime. Later rulers claim, oh, we are the Roman Empire, just because they're located there. and they, they, they claim to maintain Roman tradition, but most of what survives is this tribal, pagan, there's Christianity, but the Christians are also in, in a decline. Uh, when we call this period the Dark Ages, uh, you know, that's a very uh, Eurocentric view of history. It's because in this part of the world, at least, um, not much is happening. The, the human civilization grinds to a halt from about the 5th century to the 15th century. In the 15th century, of course, what begins in European uh, history? The Renaissance, the rebirth. Because for about a millennium, uh, Europe is in, is in, is in uh, hibernation. Um, as we said, the Byzantine Empire is doing just, just fine. That'll last all the way till 1453 when uh, Constantinople will fall, fall to the Ottomans. Uh, tomorrow we'll talk about the rise of the Muslims.